You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut, part of Ocus Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hello, and welcome to Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. My name is Kevin Elias. I'm a fifth year resident in Royal Oak, Michigan. My name is Brock Howell. I'm a orthopedic surgeon in private practice in Montgomery, Alabama. On today's episode, we are really excited to introduce Dr. Chloe Scott. Dr. Scott completed traveling fellowships at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Cartilage Repair Center in Boston and is now a consultant at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. Thank you for joining us. No problem. Thank you for the invitation. So I'll have to jump in here and say uh, it's a pleasure to be back on a call with Chloe. I had the honor of getting to spend some time with her in Guatemala, where we went down on a mission trip down there and did a lot of total joints down there and just had a good time. And it's always good to see her. Great to see you too, Brock. And thanks again for the invitation, especially to speak about one of my uh, favorite traumaplasty topics. Okay. So you say traumaplasty, kind of explain that to everybody out there. Cause I think that's kind of a new term that hasn't been around a while. Sure. So I think traditionally, I suppose people would specialize mainly in trauma or mainly in arthroplasty. And especially if you're into private practice, you can maybe focus more on one than the other. But increasingly, I think with the aging population and the number of fragility fractures, arthroplasty is becoming more essential as a skill to have if you're a practicing trauma surgeon. So I have a practice that's 50-50 trauma and hip and knee arthroplasty. So most of my trauma now that I see tends to be periprosthetic fractures and periarticular knee fractures, as well as, you know, the standard hip fractures that obviously take a lot of arthroplasty management. So I think the development of the term traumaplasty simply reflects that change in lots of people's practice where if you're doing both trauma and arthroplasty, the cases are getting more complicated and revision skills are really useful often in a trauma situation. I think that's a very good explanation of it. I see it a lot. I mean, things tend to bleed in from one specialty into another, whether it's a bad acetabular fracture that may need fixation and a concurrent hip replacement, or even like this first topic we're going to discuss, tibial plateau fractures with, instead of going forward with fixation, maybe doing a primary arthroplasty on it. So uh, I think Kevin was going to kind of discuss the article, lead into it, and then we're going to get your take on it. Yeah, absolutely. So Dr. Scott's actually the senior author on a recent publication in Journal of Arthroplasty titled Primary versus Secondary Total Knee Arthroplasty for Tibial Plateau Fractures in Patients Age 55 or Over, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. In this article, your group in Edinburgh identified and reviewed all quality studies that assessed either primary or secondary total knee arthroplasty for tibial plateau fractures in patients 55 or older. Outcomes of interest were complication rates, patient-reported outcomes, re-intervention rates, and mortalities. There were 12 studies that met all the inclusion criteria. Three of them were prospective, nine were retrospective, and there were 341 patients in all. 121 of these were treated with primary total knee arthroplasty, and 220 were treated with secondary total knee arthroplasty secondary being defined as the initial injury being treated by anything other than arthroplasty with ORIF and non-operative both included. Demographically, patients in the secondary told me arthroplasty group were younger and had longer follow-up, which is not surprising. 
In terms of results, the pooled complication rate, both intraoperatively and postoperatively, was almost three times higher in the secondary tolony arthroplasty group as opposed to the primary group. The only complication higher in the primary tolony arthroplasty group was intraoperative periprostatic fractures, which is not really a surprise. Specifically, the rate of aseptic revision was significantly higher in the secondary tolony arthroplasty group. So I thought this was a great study, number one, because I was a little bit surprised by the results in terms of it was really stacked in, in favor of the primary arthroplasty group, and it wasn't necessarily close. It was really a, a huge difference. And I think part of that has to do with, Dr. Scott, you're talking about in just kind of practice patterns, that there are some places where people are comfortable taking these patients if they have the correct fracture pattern and doing a primary arthroplasty on it, whereas someone is much more comfortable doing an ORIF and then later if they require an arthroplasty down the road. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's always a lot of selection bias in these studies. And of course, if you've done some acute total knees for tibial plateau fractures and it's been a disaster, you're not going to publish your results, probably. So there's definitely a selection bias in terms of the literature that's out there. But there's also a lot of dogma, I think, especially among arthroplasty surgeons that, no, you can't do a total knee arthroplasty for a fracture. Much better to fix it first, retain the bone stock, and you can always do a total knee at a later stage. And that's certainly what I was always taught. And in Edinburgh, we've been doing total knees for a few more of these. Now that we've got tools like metaphyseal cones that let you manage bone defect easier, than, than previous reconstruction options. So I think in the knowledge that we were doing it and actually we're not seeing high rates of complications, we wondered what the literature would show because all of these case series, they're so small because it is an unusual thing to do that really you do need to pull everything together to get an idea. And to be perfectly honest, I was surprised as well at how big of a difference it was across the literature Although on a case by case basis, I know that I can manage acute fractures reliably with cones and a fairly straightforward total knee. And I also know that some post RF late total knees that I do are really difficult operations with loads of different elements to think about that can give you complications, mainly difficulties with scarring, multiple skin incisions, retained metal work and access to the knee joint to be able to do your knee replacement safely. And I think that's reflected in this study because a lot of the complications, the intraoperative ones and the postoperative ones, are all associated with difficult access to really stiff knees or stiff knees thereafter. And obviously a high rate of infection, which I don't suppose is that surprising because most of them have been operated on previously. So Chloe, so... How do you go about picking the right patient to do this on and why? Because, I mean, if you look back maybe at the traditional data that shows probably very small number of lateral plateau fractures end up needing an arthroplasty in the long run. So who are you picking and why are you picking those patients to do an arthroplasty on them as opposed to just fixing it? So that's a great question and that's really the key and we're not advocating that we switch from fixation to knee replacement for most tibial plateau fractures. 
I still fix 95% of the plateau fractures that I see. So it's not that dramatic a change, but the rates of late total knee replacement that are reported in the literature after plateau fracture include all patients. So all young patients with plateaus that you would never consider doing a knee replacement are in there. And those rates vary between three and 7%. So absolutely in all comers, the rate of conversion to total knee is low. But if you look at patients over 60, in our unit anyway, it's 12%. So we've looked at those patients to try and work out who fails, who is it that ends up needing a total knee replacement so that we could maybe intervene earlier and do a total knee instead. And that work is about to be published in the Bone and Joint Journal. And in it, we found if you're over 60 and you've got a severely depressed unicondylar fracture, so you know more than 15 millimeters depressed, or if you've got pre-existing osteoarthritis or inflammatory arthritis, then those were the main risk factors for ending up with a, a total knee replacement anyway, even if you were well fixed to start off with. And it's the depression that I think is the most important element in that half of our patients that had severe joint depression ended up with a knee replacement anyway. So that's how I counsel my patients if they have a fracture that fits that pattern. And, you know, we have a process of shared decision making. If they want to take their chances and have fixation, that's what they do. But most of them with a 50-50 odds, they take the knee replacement and miss out on a period of restricted weight bearing. Yeah, I think that restricted weight bearing, not having to go through that process, especially in elderly patients, is something that doesn't go unmissed there. Especially, I mean, it reflects back to now the ball swinging back towards the momentum, swinging back towards instead of fixing elderly hip fractures, we should be doing hemis or replacing them just to get patients mobilized. So we're not keeping weight off a leg for six to 18 weeks afterwards. So do you have any tricks if you're wanting to get started in this, like as far as exposure? I know you mentioned metaphyseal cones. What are your tricks? How do you get into this? So we've actually published this month the surgical technique in arthroplasty today for anybody that's interested for the unicondylar type fractures. I would say that the patients that I picked to do total knees on, they are patients that I would be happy to offer a total knee to in the office if they came as an outpatient with arthritis. I'm not talking about doing them on necessarily on the super frail elderly 90 year old with terrible soft tissues. So it's more kind of active 60 to 70 year olds who actually have the worst effect on their health related quality of life after fracture fixation. So they're the best group, I suppose, to start with. And unicondylar fractures are easier to deal with than, than bicondylar fractures. Sometimes it's the bicondylar ones that are unreconstructable. So my approach to the unicondylar fractures is I ignore the fracture and I use an asymmetric metaphyseal cone for either medial or lateral and just a 50 millimeter stem and just a normal CR or, or CS or PS, whatever flavor of knee replacement you do. The bicondylars, I think, are much more complicated. Sometimes they obviously still need a cone, but they often need a hinge as well. So you're in a different sphere with those. And in fact, in the meta-analysis that we did, that was one of the differences between the 
primary and the secondary groups that the primary group have more hinges in because they need them. Yeah, no, uh, it's something to think about for sure. Kevin, in your training right now, are you seeing any of this? Not a lot. And that was part of the reason I, I thought this was really interesting is I was like seeing what other people are doing and how, again, possibly not only your practice, but the practice around you can affect who's doing these. A lot of these go to our trauma surgeons. We have a really big trauma group and we have a really big arthroplasty group. So I see a lot of these secondary, definitely holding the arthroplasties, but not a lot of the primary. So I think it's definitely a good technique if you're someone who is arthroplasty taking call or you are dual fellowship trained. I think this is something that clearly can be to the benefit of you and the patient. Probably one of the rare times that we're able to do maybe one and done kind of hopefully for these patients as opposed to having to bring them back. And aside from the complications we saw and just the morbidity of going under for the second time, again, it's affecting their quality of life just to go back to the OR and have to go through all of that again. Yeah, I think it's going to take a while to probably see this in some centers where everybody kind of stays siloed. Like you're saying, you got the busy trauma service. They're just going to fix everything. The arthroplasty service is going to be doing their thing. But when you have experts like Chloe who are kind of trained in both, I think you'll start seeing it more when more people exist like Chloe. And so kind of on to the next topic, we're moving away from just a tibial plateau fracture into the realm of periprosthetic distal femur fractures. And unlike the world of trauma and arthroplasty, staying siloed and wanting to kind of hold on to this sort of stuff and do what they do best, it seems like now this is one of the situations where you'll have a trauma service, have a periprosthetic distal femur fracture come in and all of a sudden they say, oh, there's not enough bone there. We we don't want to mess with that. Call the arthroplasty person. They need a DFR. And then the arthroplasty person's like, no, I think there's plenty of bone there. Why don't you just fix it? And so the next article we're going to talk about is kind of the outcomes of each. And we can kind of talk about Chloe's um, experience and her thought process and what goes into deciding whether or not to fix a distal femur fracture versus just do a distal femoral replacement. All right, so this article was a meta-analysis, I believe, out of Emory, like Kevin discussed earlier. And basically, they reviewed publications over 10 years from 2010 to 2020. And they really just looked at the different outcomes in all these different papers when you're comparing treating a periprosthetic distal femur fracture with ORIF versus distal femur replacement. And the crux of it, whether they were doing single plate or intermedially narrow or now dual fixation, the crux of it showed that there were equivalent or relatively equivalent complications and reoperations. Now, the flavor of the reoperation is definitely different based on whether or not you're fixing a distal femur fracture versus doing a distal femoral replacement. I guess it's not as big of a deal to go back in and do a surgery for non-union or malunion versus having to go in and do another surgery for an infected distal femoral replacement or a loose distal femoral replacement. And so I really would like to get Chloe's take on how she approaches this difficult situation that we we we're seeing more and more now that more total knees are going in. 
Yeah, thanks, Brock. I think it is a difficult situation because we've got all these classification systems for these fractures and actually none of them really tell us which ones to fix and which ones need replacing in that the most common situation I find is that you have a well-fixed femoral component, but just terrible quality bone. And none of them really, really cover that as an option. In terms of my practice, if there's enough bone attached to the femoral component and the femoral component isn't loose, then I fix them either with a nail plate or a dual plating if it's really low or just a retrograde nail or a lateral locking plate if it's a bit higher. I love doing a distal femoral replacement like all of us do, but I think it is a bigger operation. And I think that's reflected in this meta-analysis in the difference in medical complications. So there's more medical complications in patients after distal femoral replacement. It is a bigger deal, especially for some of these elderly patients and people who say, yeah, but you get to, you can weight bear them straight away. You don't have to restrict them. I would argue that with modern fixation techniques, you don't need to restrict them either. And there's loads of papers saying that immediate weight bearing after fixation is okay. So I think distal femoral replacement is great. I love doing them, but we should probably be a bit more selective about who we do them on. Because as you've said, like the reoperations that you have to do when they go wrong, that's a different ball game to when fixation goes wrong. But all of the registry data, the Australian registry data that was published in the JOA last year shows the use of DFR for these fractures is increasing exponentially. Everyone loves the DFR and you can see that in the patients in this meta-analysis. So most of the ones that had a DFR, they weren't the really low fractures that have to have one. It was a choice that was made. They could have had either fixation or distal femoral replacement. And that's two thirds of the distal femurs in this study. I thought that was really interesting as well, talking about two thirds of these were actually when the component wasn't loose. The, the classic thinking is the slam dunk is obviously when the component's loose, and then you have to do the DFR. And kind of going back to our traumaplasty discussion from earlier, I was recently at a conference talking to a uh, trauma surgeon, not from my institution, who is telling me that the trauma surgeons will do the DFRs and not only the, the arthroplasty service. That's not how it is at our institution, but I found that interesting. I think that also makes a little bit of bias in here, in addition to the bias that comes with how sick is the patient. It's ironic because I think we all think that, oh man, if it's a sicker patient that I just want to quickly allow them to, to ambulate, then you, you go to the DFR. But that's also the patient who probably can't tolerate the huge incision and the more invasive approach. So I think that decision-making always has a little bit of selection bias to it. And I think that's that selection bias makes it really difficult to tease the nuance out in systematic reviews and meta-analyses. But every time that ought to randomize them, that I know certainly a few prospective trials have had to be stopped early. Yeah, and another bias that may go into this, not all of us surgeons are at large tertiary care centers to where I get a call at nine o'clock at night with a periprosthetic distal femur fracture. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. We'll put it on the next morning. We'll just do a DFR. DFR doesn't live at my hospital. DFR does not probably live in the city. 
that's something that's going to need to be brought in and may not be able to be brought in in time the next morning. Then you're having to push the case off to later in the week. Are you going to do it? Are you going to ask one of your partners to do it? And sometimes the easiest thing to do is I'm just going to fix it because just the path of least resistance. And that may not necessarily be true at larger tertiary care centers. So kind of the path that people are going down to pick what they're doing and why they're doing it, whether it's out of convenience, whether it's out of comfort level, whether it's frailty, I think it's really hard to parse it all out. Absolutely. And in the UK, we're developing revision knee networks so that all of the kind of revision arthroplasty expertise is located in kind of hubs around the country. So if you're a patient, it depends where you rock up to. And if you get transferred to the hub, they're definitely going to do a DFR because that's the whole reason you've been transferred there, even if you've got a fixable fracture. So there's, of course, there's a big issue with resource and depending on what healthcare system you work in and what expertise you've got in terms of trauma and arthroplasty and how you're trained. If you're trauma fasty fellowship trained, you're more likely to do a DFR potentially. And it's really difficult, I think, to unravel all of that from the studies that we've got so far. Do you find yourself doing more fixation now that more of the fixation options are out there, new nails with better bends, nail plate combos that kind of work together and better periprosthetic nails in general? I do actually. And there's there's two of us in my unit that do kind of traumaplasty, so half arthroplasty and half trauma. And both of us are reducing the number of DFRs that we do as the technology gets better to fix lower and lower fractures, I suppose. And when you do both, I think you do see that it's less of an insult to some of these frail elderly patients to fix them with a plate than it is to to undergo a DFR. And so that's really what swung me. I don't have any evidence for that. I don't have any hard evidence that it's difficult for them to recover in the early phase. It's just my experience. When we talk about devices, implant technology, that was something that I thought about when, when reading both of these, because I do think that allowing patients to weight bear has always been thought of as the advantage of the DFR with these more modern trauma implants. Patients with that earlier ambulation can get that benefit even with ORIF. I also think when talking about the prior paper and the primary total knee for patients with plateau fractures, this probably wasn't possible or at least to the same level without sleeves and cones. So I think it's kind of interesting how as technology improves, dogmas and old literature might not be as applicable as they used to be because we now have better technology to treat some of these issues. Absolutely. I would agree with that completely. It's funny. We don't want to fix our plateaus, but we do want to fix our distal femurs. I knew you would say that, but I think there's a happy medium, right? Absolutely. There isn't one operation that is the right thing to do for everybody. And it's just about working out who that should be, which patients do best with which treatment. And that's part of introducing new technology, right? And innovating, you need to work out what works for who and for what indications. And that's really what what all of this feeds into. Well, there may not be one surgery to do for everybody, but it sounds like there is one surgeon that can do it all. And that would be Dr. Chloe Scott. Brock, you're such a suck. (laughs) That's true.
Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Scott, and for everyone who's listening. Feel free to email us at joathecut at gmail.com if there's a topic that you'd like to see presented, and we will see you all next time. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the Journal of Arthroplasty's The Cut. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.